The idea that a company is going to make an offer to somebody without having done this homework says to me that they're acting like the employee is a commodity and that all employees are the same. This is not like everybody's a snowflake and you need to customize everything because they're so delicate. It's not about that. It's about your company. You have resources. You're going to have to either offer more or fewer resources to this person. If you understand what they care about, you might be able to offer the right resources and not too much of one thing and not enough of another thing. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. Hey, it's no secret, y'all. Highly skilled employees bring at least 10 times their value to your organization, maybe even more. When you have highly skilled 10x high performers in your organization, your business is more agile, more innovative, more productive, more collaborative, much more effective. It's like your team has and continues to experience transformational growth. But how do you create a culture and leadership behaviors and habits that recruit these high 10x performers? Once you have them, how do you lead, manage, and develop them? And the $50,000 question, once you have them, how do you retain them? It's not easy, especially in 2021, as so many organizations are experiencing the great resignation. And that's why I'm happy to talk with Michael Solomon this week. Michael is the co-founder of 10X Management, where they help companies find the top tech experts. He's been featured in Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNN, and much more. And I was excited to find out that he's got a pretty cool connection to the original 10X boss, Bruce Springsteen. And he's the co-author of Game Changer, How to Be 10X in the Talent Economy. In Game Changer, Michael provides you with proven strategies on how your company can create the right environment for top talent and breakthrough success by upending traditional business practices. Those practices that everyone assumes are the right ones because we've always done it this way. He also reveals how professionals can evolve from good to great to 10x and enjoy the many perks and rewards that this status brings. So here it is. Here's my interview with Michael Solomon. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled to be able to chat with you today. Yeah, me too. Well, so tell me about the book Game Changer. What brought you to writing the book? I have to give a little bit of background to sort of have it make sense. But my partner and I have a 26-year-old artist management company in the music industry. And as the music industry was getting badly disrupted, we figured out that we needed to do something else to supplement our income. So the first exercise was managing some filmmakers. And it informed us that we had muscles to sort of do management or talent agent work 
beyond just musicians, but that wasn't enough. So we then figured out that the new rock stars were very high level freelance tech professionals. And we started a company called 10X Management, which was the first of its kind tech talent agency. So these are just high level developers and data scientists and very smart people who build the code that's in your phone or on your computer. And we help take the pain out of freelancing. By the time we were done doing this, we started to realize that we had this fairly unique perspective of having managed talent across really a a range of fields, including musicians, music producers, music writers, directors, entrepreneurs, and technology professionals. And it became very clear that there was a through line. And the book is really a distillation of what top talent really wants and the way they need to be treated across many fields, but it's really written through the lens of and for corporate America, large and small businesses who have managers that range from the middle to the top that need to rethink the talent equation as we enter this sort of new era. And obviously, there's been a lot of changes in work in the last year and a half. We didn't predict that that was going to happen in a year and a half. We predicted a lot of that was going to happen over the next decade, but things got a little accelerated thanks to that little pandemic we've heard about. Of course. So what does talent want? How do they want to be treated? So we sort of broke it down in, there's the old world and the old generations, and and we all sort of have a sense of the deal that companies have made with them and they've made with companies. And that's really changed a lot. When we look at, through our lens, 10Xers, which we describe as, the best of the best. This is the top talent. This is the term 10X comes from the idea that these are people who can provide 10 times the value of their peers. These are really top performers. And that's the focus of of what what we wrote about. They want very specific things that are very different from what came before them. They want to be treated with both respect, but also given hard problems to work on. They care very much about what they do. They care about the mission, their own personal mission and the mission of what they're working on. So companies need to adapt and connect when they're trying to hire somebody. They need to connect what the company is doing to what this person cares about, which means that you need to know what the person cares about. And I'm sure we'll dive deeper into that in subsequent conversations. This group of people likes feedback. They grow. They're lifelong learners. They love to learn. And one of the best ways they learn is when there's somebody around them who can help them see around corners, which is something we call future vision, and also help them see their blind spots, which we call inner vision. So a great manager can figure out and knows their person well enough to be able to say, hey, you're doing so great on all of these things. I noticed you keep getting tripped up by this one thing. Is that something you've been aware of that you're working on? I want to see if there's something we can discuss and if I can provide any assistance. That kind of feedback can be enormously powerful to somebody who's a high achiever because they know how to learn things themselves. They just don't know how to learn what they don't know exists. And it's interesting to me because a lot of times we talk about you know people being really talented, really successful in their field. And we can sometimes just get that idea of someone who knows that they're great, who knows that they're talented and doesn't really need much feedback. But what you're saying is the opposite, is that those who are exponentially more successful, those who are 10x high performers actually crave that feedback, actually crave the things that are going to help them learn to be even better than they already are. That's exactly right. And that is part of what makes them 10Xers. If we describe something called the manageability continuum in Game Changer, and is it one at a spectrum there is sort of the 10Xer who is interested in the feedback and constantly improving and advancing because they don't look at failure or error or flaw 
as a problem or something to be defensive about. They just view it as an opportunity to continue to optimize themselves. On the other end of the spectrum is what we call the sabotage impulse. These are the people, and every listener, I'm sure you're going to smile as I describe these people, everybody's run into somebody like this. These are the people who nothing is their fault. And when you are around them and you want to give them feedback, all that you find when there is feedback in their direction because something didn't go right or because somebody's just trying to genuinely help them is what we refer to as a blame thrower because nothing is their fault. Everybody else must have made the problem. And therefore, they've taken all agency away from themselves. Because if, let's say, I've done something that's not great or I'm not good at something, if my go-to reflex is to say, no, 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 that's not me, it was Beth. Beth was the one who created that problem. It's really on her. I don't have the opportunity to improve. And people who really have the sabotage impulse, you need to get out of your business and you need to get out of your life because they're stuck and they're not going to be able to improve. You could have a 4 Xer who has a long way to go, but they are interested in feedback and they want to improve. That's all it takes. They're on their way to getting better and better. But the people with the sabotage impulse are just stuck. I suspect that you can relate to some people who you've encountered who've been like that. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, and this is sad to me at times, I also encounter their teammates, their peers, their coworkers who will see their management allowing them to behave this way, allowing them to stay in the organization because, oh, well, they're a great salesperson. They've brought in this much revenue in the past year, or they're really good at this one thing in their job. But what it does is it affects the other people that have to work with them. And then eventually those people who may be four, five X, six X people that are on their way to developing themselves that will eventually leave the company and go elsewhere. I am so, so happy you brought that up because it's something that I often mention and, and neglected to. The cost of having somebody on your team like that, and that's part of the reason I was saying you got to get rid of them, it's staggering because what it can do to culture is terrible. And what it does to your top performers is it demotivates them. And what it does to your bottom performers is it has them ducking and covering to try and make sure that the blame doesn't land on them. So one person like that on a team can not only, you know, not only are they not going to do great work and they can just crush everybody else's productivity and the culture. Yeah, it seems like when that happens, leaders will take whatever short-term gain they may get from having that employee in there and they take it at the detriment for any long-term gain, long-term growth of the team. Exactly. Now, so you've got a background in the entertainment and music industry, and you talked about that. And I've heard you talk about a story about John Mayer, and we can definitely consider him to be a high performer, a 10Xer in his career. And you show a comparison, a distinction between the way that he operated as a 10Xer versus another performer who may have been been able to be a 10Xer, but didn't. Talk to me about that distinction. I'm happy to be talking about this. I don't remember the name that we assigned to the person who was the non-10Xer in the story in the book, but we're going to go with the name George for the purposes of talking today. John was willing to do everything that it took. It was not that he lacked vision and backbone. He did, and he had those in droves. And there were moments, you know, he pushed back on things that I think with hindsight, he learned were maybe not the right thing to push back on. There's one story in particular about that, but he was smart enough. He is a super smart guy to know who around him was worth listening to and what feedback was worth taking. 
And he worked harder than everybody. And he also worked in a very macro way. There were no details that were too small. And there was nothing that involves his career that he was willing to completely overlook. And then we juxtapose that with the person we're going to call George. And George wasn't really interested in the feedback. And the minute that George started to have any level of success... What George was getting, and this goes right to the sabotage impulse, was George was hearing all the fans who said, you're so great, your songs have changed my life, you have an amazing voice, whatever whatever it was they were saying to him, that became the loudest voice in their head and overshadowed all of the good and smart feedback that they might have been getting from their manager, their lawyer, their record label. It just became to the point where they couldn't take in any constructive feedback because they were so overwrought with the adulation that comes from fans. Wow. Yeah. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier around being a 10Xer. And I think about the skills that you have or the IQ that you have. A lot of times those people, especially in business that are high performers, are fairly smart at what they do. They have a high IQ. But you also talk about how having a high EQ is just as important, if not even more important than having a high IQ. I think it is. And I think that one way to sort of illustrate that would be if we think of EQ in a lot of ways as your ability to relate and communicate with others, to just take this to a ridiculous extreme, but to illustrate the point, if you took the smartest person in the world but they had no EQ at all. So they had really no ability to communicate what they did to other people. They wouldn't really be able to do much with their intelligence, their inventions, their any of it, because they wouldn't be able to convey it. And the people who really are 10Xers are not only that way because they have the intellectual capacity, but part of what allows them to achieve as much as they do is not just that they can think in their own heads and create things and they have know-how and skill, But they're able to, that always involves other people, and they're able to communicate and motivate and effectively be with the rest of the team in a way that helps them advance what they're working on. So sometimes that might be a developer who's not a designer, and they need to get designers out of the designer, and they have to convey their vision, and they have to be able to work with that person and understand that person's particular needs or even something going on in that person's personal life that may impact them. And the more that somebody is a 10Xer, and this really gets back into what it's like to manage these people, the more they understand who they're dealing with, how to get the best out of those people, which you can think of as being very Machiavellian, or you can think of it as being pragmatic. But part of that is also treating everybody like a human. Part of getting the best out of people is is not seeing people as objects, but seeing them as people and understanding their complex beings. I can't, to me, You could give me, you know, when I talk about managing the best tech freelancers, you could give me the absolute best developer in the world. If they don't have EQ, I can't take them on. It's just not possible. And I could do very well with somebody who was a very solid developer, but not the best, but who's got a high EQ. Those two things can work. The high IQ with no EQ, not very productive. So it sounds like that being a 10Xer, it's really important to have a constant focus on empathy and clarity, empathy and recognizing the individuals you work with and how they are individual and what their individual needs are and clarity, being able to communicate to an individual level. You said that perfectly. And to just build on that, that's part of what the change that we talk about in the book that needs to be sort of 
integrated into corporate America, which is it used to be a culture where you could say the boss could say, I want that on my desk at 3.30. And the employee said, yes, sir. And they did that. And the truth is, that's not the workplace anymore. And that doesn't work for 10Xers. And interestingly, Gen Z and millennials who are not all 10Xers have very similar qualities. And some of the things that we talk about relating to 10Xers also apply to them. So as you're saying, the manager needs to have the EQ and needs to understand how to personalize and customize to other 10Xers, but they also need to be able to do that for these younger generations. It's a ridiculous notion that when pick a company, Fang Company X hires a mid-level engineering role and they hire somebody who's 30 years old and single on the one hand, and then they hire somebody who, for the same level role, who's 32 years old and has three kids at home, that they may, they offer the same package. Because those two people want very different things out of their job package. One of them might be thrilled for all the on-campus perks and staying and working out in the gym and playing on the basketball court on the campus. And the other one wants to get out of there. And the fact that there's no consideration when those offers are being made is illustrative of the issues and the transition that needs to go on, that needs to go on right now. And that's also not just about making the offer, that's about how people are managed. Right. And that to kind of go a little bit deeper into that, you've actually created a tool that helps companies and their candidates when they're recruiting and hiring. So a lot of times people would generally ask the question you know, about salary, no matter what age you are, no matter what your personal life situation is. Okay. What salary do you want? Whereas you've taken a tool that goes a lot further and a lot deeper that helps hiring managers better understand what's important to their candidates. Talk to me about that. I'm so glad you went there. So the tool that we built is called a lifestyle calculator. And as you just said, we started a third business that I should mention, which is called 10X Ascend. In that company, we are compensation negotiation advisors. So people come to us with job offers in hand, and then we help them negotiate their job offers. And the thing that's crazy is the only thing any company asks an employee, as you just said, before they make an offer is what is your comp requirement or what is your salary requirement? And then they offer no choices after that. They just come with a job offer. They don't know very much about what the candidate wants. So what the lifestyle calculator is, is a little tool where the candidate gets 100 points and they get to distribute them among up to 24 different attributes that go into a compensation package and work life. Not all of them are relevant in every instance. There's definitely five or eight of them that don't apply in many instances, but no two people fill them out alike. And the idea that a company is going to make an offer to somebody without having done this homework says to me that they're acting like the employee is a commodity and that all employees are the same. This is not like everybody's a snowflake and you need to customize everything because they're so delicate. It's not about that. It's about your company, you have resources. You're going to have to either offer more or fewer resources to this person. If you understand what they care about, you might be able to offer the right resources and not too much of one thing and not enough of another thing. It is amazing how so many times companies will just have this underlying assumption that everyone is the same. We talk about our customers. We talk about empathizing with our customers and providing a great customer experience based on what customers need. But we have this one assumption that all of our employees, all of our team members, the only thing that they need is a salary and everybody gets the same benefits, the same perks. 
It's amazing to me. In all this time of doing these negotiations, the only time I've seen a company offer a choice, it was once. A company said, here's one offer with more cash and less equity, and here's another offer with more equity and less cash. I applaud that move so much. That is such a step in the right direction. But imagine if you were making an offer and you were sitting there with a lifestyle calculator and you see that this person really cares about continuing education or personal and professional development. And you have a policy about that. And you haven't told them what your policy is. You haven't told them, hey, you know, you have a budget for 10 grand a year to go to conferences or take classes or whatever the policy is. You didn't know to tell them about it because you didn't ask, what do they care about? So, and this, you know, what we're talking about, this is exactly what extends into management. This is how you have to manage now. There's a chapter called The Bespoke Boss. You can't treat everybody the same. They're not all the same. They have different missions and there's different things that motivate them. And hopefully in the coming years, we'll see this kind of customization make it into classrooms because we should be teaching our children this way. But in the workplace where there's such a direct relationship to money and power, this transition should happen faster because this is going to save companies money and make them better, stronger companies because they can hire the right people. And I will tell you, you know, I came from FedEx, much larger company, and it's a lot easier for smaller companies, more agile companies to implement these things. I get it. Larger companies, you have so many processes and so many rules in place based on whoever that it's difficult to implement these things. At the same time, halfway in my career, I took a role under a new manager, and this was nothing around the official salary, the official perks and benefits that I got as an employee. But in my first week, she had me fill out this form that she had created for all of her team members. And basically, it was to help her understand all of my personal interests, my background. What are my favorite things? What's my favorite food? What's all these things that were personal to me around my background. And on top of that was what was important to me from her. How did I like to be rewarded and recognized as a team member? What were the things that were important to me as far as, you know, my work-life balance or, you know, being able to either work remotely or work in the office, all those types of things. And because she recognized that every person on her team was different and praising somebody in an all employee meeting might be great for one person, but for another person, it would be really embarrassing. And she recognized that. Even if your company doesn't allow you to have the processes or capabilities to do something like the lifestyle calculator, I think as a leader, you're still able to take some of those steps to better understand how to treat your employees. That's a super great point. I have a subsequent question to that, which is, how did people, how did her team react to her? My guess is that team would have followed her to the ends of the earth as a result of the way she treated them. Absolutely. That was absolutely the case. And beyond that, the people that weren't still with her, that were elsewhere in the company, were so willing to collaborate with her, so willing to work with her and her team. She had a great following, not just from the people that reported to her, but from others that were connected with her in the company as well. Look, being a great leader as opposed to an average manager is not easy. It definitely takes work and effort and thought, 
But the value, I'll be honest, there's two really great rewards. We'll start with the more benevolent one. The value is you're treating people as human beings. You're treating them with the platinum rule, which is how they want to be treated. And that's super valuable. Let's get away from the sort of woo-woo, like let's live in a better world space. You're going to get the best performance out of people by treating people this way. And I say that because there's a lot of managers who don't respond to, I want to be a nicer, kinder, gentler. Like that's not... Don't do it for that motivation. Do it because this is how you're going to get the best out of your team. Those who still believe that leading with fear is the way to go, not right now, not when everybody's leaving their jobs, not when people are looking at work-life balance in a different way, not right after the existential threat of COVID and people realizing they're not going to live forever. They're just not going to stay under that environment unless you have something so incredibly important to them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience? I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with that audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, if I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com slash speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. And now just to kind of go back to the entertainment background, because again, I'm a huge music fan. I'm fascinated by music and music stories. We talk about leaders and bosses, and you got to work with the true boss, Bruce Springsteen. Talk to me about what made him a 10X leader. I guess I have to go back a little bit. This goes back to before I was 25 when we started Brickwall Management, which is the entertainment company. And before that, I toured with Bruce and didn't know the term 10X yet, but got a moment of sort of instant recognition of that I was in the land of greatness. And part of what, and some of this is through the lens of hindsight, but part of what I got to see in Bruce and the people immediately around him was all what we call 10Xers. Not only is Bruce, and I don't need to sing his praises, I think everybody knows whether you like him or you don't like him, he's incredibly hardworking, he's incredibly prolific, he's just amazing, and he's obviously incredibly intelligent. But the people that he surrounded himself with are all at that level for their respective roles. And he listens to them. He trusts them because he knows that he's picked great people. So what you have is this incredible dynamic of the top. You've got Bruce as a 10Xer, and then you've got his management as 10Xers and his tour management as 10Xers, and then his band and his personnel 
and the road crew and all of it, people who work at the label, the publicists, it's just, it's sort of all from the top down. And what you see in that is a 10 figure cottage industry by one person doing the thing he loves and with people around him who do the things that they love. So pretty amazing. And then hearing you talk about that, that makes it sound like the importance, the value of ensuring that it's not just you as the leader that's a 10Xer. It's not just you finding individual 10Xers. It sounds like it's creating a culture of 10X, creating a culture that focuses on IQ and EQ, that focuses on empathy and clarity. That's it. When you do that, and it's like the woman you were speaking about from FedEx, you create loyalty, you create people who want to you know, I always think of it, it's such a silly example, but I think of it as the difference between the employees who walk past the piece of paper in the hallway that's on the floor versus the employees that pick up the piece of paper that's on the floor. It's not their job. There's somebody's job it is to do that, but they care enough. And this is the way treating people this way and creating this kind of culture is where everybody picks up the piece of paper on the floor because they care not just about their job, they care about the ecosystem that's created. And as a company, 10X, we've created a set of core values that we did as a group. There are five values with a couple of bullet points under each of them, and we try and live it. And one of them is we help each other. We work together as a team. And what I see in the way that our company is run and the way that people treat each other is very much living up to that value. You can also create structures that engender that. So if you just think about a restaurant for a second, you can have a restaurant where the wait staff each keeps their own tips, in which case when somebody else needs help, they might help because they're a nice person or they might not. They're certainly not incentivized to help or where they pull tips. And then they're all working to make sure everybody has great service because every waiter is going to be impacted by the service of every table, regardless of whether it's their table. In that kind of situation, if we pooled tips together, as an individual, I would like to think that I would always be prone to watching my fellow servers' backs and helping out as needed. At the same time, if we pooled tips together, I would definitely make sure that you know if I saw where their table needed something and I knew they weren't around, I would jump in and help out. Hey, I'm here to help. That's the idea is you can create these structures in two different ways, right? You can do this by just having values or you can create a structure of where people have skin in the game and there's actual motivation. And I think it's about, you know, in our case, it's really about doing both. We, our commission structure is such that people have a reason to help each other. Everybody gets bonuses when the company does well, as opposed to just the individual, but they also are incentivized as individuals. So we try really hard, but then it's about building in, you know, as we're talking about building this culture, one of the things we did at the beginning of the pandemic was we started doing a weekly check-in call where there's no agenda and it's really just there on Mondays. It's really kind of just to see how we're doing and making sure no one's slipping into the abyss during this kind of crazy time. And then we thought, you know, that's not really enough. So we added twice a week meditation for anybody who wants to do it via Zoom. And some listeners may be saying that's woo-woo or I can't afford to do it. This didn't cost us anything. It's costing us a little time, but I believe what we get back from the team in hard work and loyalty and appreciation is well worth the time that we take out to do these things. Definitely. I want leaders to understand that some of these nominal investments you can make like that have a much higher return than you can imagine. So just having that once a week mindfulness meditation, yeah, that may sound woo-woo to a lot of people. Number one, 
it shows that there's a focus on that and it reminds your team members to actually take that time to do that, to build that habit in. But then the return is even beyond just the employees being able to feel better and be able to physically feel better. The return is higher productivity. Exactly. And that's really the thing. It's sort of like we might talk a little bit about some of the nonprofit work I've done later, but one of the things I've gotten big on saying is be selfish, help somebody else. The value that we get from being good people in terms of our own intrinsic experience is so much more worth it for our own purposes than the people we're helping. And I think that once you start to integrate that into the workplace and you start to realize that when I become a better, kinder person, so much value comes to me for that. And that doesn't mean nice. There's a big difference between kind and nice. I want to really kind of dig into this. We, one of the people we interview, we interviewed both of Bruce's managers and a couple of other music luminaries, but we interviewed a guy named Daniel Lubetsky, who's the founder of Kind Snacks. And he named that company Kind for a very specific reason. And one of the things he talks about is the difference between being kind and being nice. You can be kind and fire somebody. That's not an unkind thing to do. And it's really important that people understand the distinction. I've often heard people talk about, you know, when you're sitting with somebody who has spinach in their teeth, it's not kind to not tell them. It might be nice or more comfortable to not tell them, but really, despite the discomfort that happens, everybody's going to be happier when the spinach is out of their teeth. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about 10Xers liking feedback and learning. Sometimes feedback can feel not nice. But feedback is absolutely kind if it's helping that person grow. Exactly. That's perfectly stated. We've talked about we're at a junction here. We've been in a junction for a while, but it's been really accelerated. There's been an old way of doing business and there's a new way of doing business. And one of the distinctions that you've made between the old way and the new way, it was between Blockbuster and Netflix. What was the big lessons here between those two? This is something we really talk about as it relates to what is a 10Xer and for people who are a little skeptical. And we can point to the business models of these companies, but really when you look at Blockbuster in its heyday, its market cap is, I think, roughly somewhere between 10 and 20% of what Netflix is today. In their heyday, when Blockbuster's market cap was that size, they had 65,000 employees. Netflix has something like 6,500 employees. And so you can see that the difference between the value that's provided by the employees of one company versus the value provided by the other, if you view that as a measure of number of employees and market cap, you see very quickly that the world has changed. And when you have the right people and the right business model, of course, the sky is the limit. This is the opportunity that companies have to start to realize is if I bring in people who can build things well and have great ideas and optimize themselves along with the rest of the team, along with the business, they're worth a lot of money. Those people are worth a ton and they're also worth changing management styles, changing procurement processes. You mentioned a few minutes ago that enterprise companies can have these draconian policies about sort of bringing people on and they're bureaucratic. And it's true. And it's part of the reason we wrote the book. The thing that we really want to help companies move away from is the idea that freelancers are something that's hard to bring on. And you have to have a 700 page agreement with the freelancer or the freelancer agency. That's not where the world is. The world is nimble. And I understand, I fully understand that the reason that agreement is 700 pages is because over the last 50 years, 
that company probably had, I don't know, a hundred legal problems. And each time they add three, four clauses into the agreement to avoid that future legal problem. We've done the same. We haven't had that kind of legal problem, but we've learned lessons. But at the end of the day, the point of the contract is to protect the company. If it's doing that at the expense of the company doing business, what is it really protecting? So we deal with these enterprise companies all the time. They want to bring on a freelancer for some urgent, immediate priority project, and it's going to take them eight months to get the paperwork done. The project doesn't exist by the time they're done. And like, they just have to figure out better. Like it's possible because some companies don't operate that way. So they have to figure out a way to be able to work with some of these people, because a lot of the 10Xers, they don't want to go inside and work at a company. Some will, many will, but many want to be freelancers because it fits their lifestyle and it fits more importantly, the idea that they want hard problems to work on because they get a new hard problem every few months. Whereas when they go inside, they often start with a hard problem and then it gets lighter and lighter. And a lot of times those hard problems are usually urgent, like you were mentioning earlier. And if you have a process and a set of documents that it takes eight months just to get a freelancer on board, that hard problem is probably already gone or is so far down the road that they don't even want to fix it right now. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier around just simply assuming that there's a one size fits all. So you've got an enterprise company who will use the same process and the same contract that they would for an agency that would be working on a multi-million dollar piece of work over the span of a few years compared to one freelancer who would come in and work on a problem for a few months at a much lower price. You can't use the same process, the same document for that. I mean, I don't understand how companies feel like this is an acceptable way to be at this moment in time. And I understand that some of these companies are in regulated industries and there's compliance issues, but there's got to be solutions. I know there are solutions because one of the things that we run into is when there's somebody in the company who wants our person badly enough and they're powerful enough, it gets done. Why is it not in the company's interest to make it so that they are more nimble and able to do this more quickly? I've even seen this situation before. I've talked to other freelancers before that have been in this situation. And there's been a couple that have found a way to find one of those agencies that had already done all of that work with that company to be onboarded. They've gone through that 400-page document. They've gone through that eight-month process. And so the freelancer will go and work for the enterprise company through the agency that already had to do the work. Exactly. We've had to do that ourselves. And we are an agency where we've been told, oh, you can't be put on the new approved vendor list. So you're going to have to give up some percentage of the money you're going to earn and go through this existing approved vendor. Feels kind of sketchy to me. I don't know whose cousin or uncle that is or why that is, but I'm sorry, I shouldn't suggest that it's all nepotism because that may not be the case, but it's a very odd system. And one that it's not, the company is not winning. There's a higher cost for that. Yep. We've talked about this before too, but right now, we're in the summer of 2021, we're experiencing the great resignation. What can leaders do to prevent or curb the great resignation in their teams? I think the most important thing, and it's really so much of what we've already talked about in terms of being bespoke and really customizing around the individuals. But I would say to be a little bit more granular, if you don't know what your team cares about as individuals 
as it relates to their career and what they think of as their future, both with your company or without your company, you should know that there's a good chance that they're looking for their next thing or thinking about their next thing. What you want to be able to do is connect with each person and explain why their future aligns with your future. Can't do that. The younger generations, Gen Z and millennials, they'll be looking for jobs and so will the 10Xers. And we're seeing it all over the place because they have choices. The job market is as good as it's ever been. All right, Michael, one thing that's been interesting to me as of late is a number of the guests that I've had are heavily involved with nonprofits at various levels. But you've actually founded a couple of nonprofits within the music industry. Talk to me about your work with We Are All Music and Musicians on Call. Absolutely a pleasure to do that. I talk about Musicians on Call being my first child. So Musicians on Call was founded in, uh, it actually had its birthday on August 18th this year. It was its 22nd birthday. It brings live and recorded music to the bedsides of patients in healthcare facilities. It's the largest provider in the world, definitely in the United States, probably in the world that's been doing this. And what's so great about my experience is the organization, which has long since been out of my direct control, maybe never was, has just grown into, I mean, from a management standpoint or from a leadership operational standpoint, a beautiful, perfect illustration of how you build and run a company. And I don't want to suggest I take the credit for that because it was not, it distinctly was not me, but it was named, this is a company that's somewhere between 20 and 30 employees. It was named the sixth best nonprofit to work in this year by the Nonprofit Times, out of all the nonprofits in the country, there are a million nonprofits in the country. It's a tiny place. And as it relates to the conversation we're having, the leadership there really understands what we're talking about and really shares credit and empowers people and elevates them and is constantly looking at where they want to go and how does this fit with their mission. And of course, in doing that work, the mission is a little cleaner and easier because the mission is so aligned with personal missions. But it's still, I know that this person really, really, really knows exactly what everybody on his team wants. And I applaud that. The We Are All Music Foundation is much newer. It's about two years old. It's really exciting. It's taking a lot of heavy lifting right now. In essence, it's very similar to the nonprofit organization called Robinhood, which many people may have heard of. It's not to be confused with the personal finance app. Robinhood was started by a guy named Paul Tudor Jones and works in the financial industry to raise tons of money, probably nine figures a year, and distributes it to best-in-class nonprofits that are alleviating poverty in New York. So the We Are All Music Foundation is raising money from the financial industry and wealthy individuals, as well as other corporations, and distributing it to the best-in-class music nonprofits that are providing assistance with healthcare as it relates to music, assistance for music education, and poverty cessation. Three different categories. It's fun to be doing another startup. It's early days, and I'm really optimistic. I can't believe I'm starting another one, but this is my sixth company that I'm involved in co-founding. And unlike other people, I haven't exited any of them. I'm still involved with all of them and still have, for the for-profit ones, still own them. And it's just a weird, a very odd moment. Congrats to you. Congrats for still being involved and being able to be involved in all of them, but also for the legacy that I think this is going to be able to leave. This is fantastic work. Well, I will say... As I said earlier, doing things for other people feels really good. And I know I've probably gotten more out of musicians on call than anybody else because it feels so good for me. And I've knock on wood, I haven't ever been in the hospital receiving music 
from a musician. And I also haven't been the musician giving the music, but I will tell you, the musicians always tell us that they think they get the best end of the deal because they love giving their music this way. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. All right. On a musical related note, last question for you. If you were to create a five song soundtrack for Game Changer, what songs would you include? It's just such a great question. And I gave this a little bit of thought. I'm very good. I'm very happy to do things on the fly. This was not one I was going to try. <laughs> so I think because we talked about him and I worked with him, I'm going to start with Working on a Dream by Bruce Springsteen. Love um, from there, I want to go to All You Need Is Love, which is the Beatles, because I yeah. think you got to bring a little bit of that into the workplace. And then Work by Rihanna and Drake. Mm, um, and then we're going to go to what happens if you don't follow the sage advice in our book, which is people saying, I don't want to work. I just want to bang on the drums all day by Todd <laughs> Rundgren. And, and finally, uh, take this job and shove it by Johnny Paycheck. Johnny Paycheck. Yes. Love it. No, that's an eclectic mix. And it's a good series of lessons right there, too. Yeah, it was wow. definitely not purely picked from my musical love. It was picked for <laughs> ly lyrical relevance as well as everything else. There you go. Well, Michael, I've learned so much from you today, but where can people go to learn more from you? Excellent question. So gamechangerthebook.com is a great website where you can learn more about the book, but more importantly, it has a quiz that you can learn how 10X you are or how 10X your company is that's free and easy to use. So that's one place to go. I'm on LinkedIn. My email address is michael at 10xmanagement.com. Happy to hear from listeners. And, and I'm also on other social media as well. So it should be pretty easy to find us. You can be found in all the right places. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed this. It was totally a pleasure, Matt. I hope we get to do it again. And I look forward to, as we talked about feedback, I look forward to any feedback you have offline about how I can do better next time. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Michael Solomon. So go ahead, check out his book, Game Changer. It'll help you and your talent become exponentially better at recruiting and retaining top talent. And if for some reason your leadership says, no, this is how we recruit, this is how we lead, this is how we manage, show your leadership the research, the stats, the case studies from the book Game Changer, and it's going to help you make a case to lead outside of the norm. Hey, and if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit the subscribe button. It's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Ethan Butte. <laughs> this was a fun interview for me. Ethan is the chief evangelist officer of BombBomb, where they help companies simplify their messaging and communication efforts to customers through a simple human-centered video experience. Ethan's the host of the Customer Experience Podcast, and he's a TEDx speaker. And he's also the co-author of Human-Centered Communication, a business case against digital pollution. The book comes out next week. In Human-Centered Communication, Ethan teaches us how to get past all that digital pollution, clutter, and distractions to build and manage relationships that truly matter. And he helps us understand how our communications can break through all that clutter and brand out from the crowd. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Ethan's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. 
Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.